case you're new here, um, Michael was a jazz piano major in college. <laughs> kind of clears a lot up, right? Yeah, I always appreciate the way God brings his talents out for the benefit of worship here. And a really great way to use it for the kingdom. I'm going to ask you to uh, turn to Acts chapter 19 or chapter 20 if you brought a Bible with you this morning. And if you don't have one, you'll find them in the racks around you. And, and if you need a Bible, um, if you don't own one, there's free Bibles in the back. Make sure you grab one on your way out this morning. Really, 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 really want you to have a copy of God's Word. Very most important thing you can own, my personal opinion. So uh, grab one of those Bibles and open it up to Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to pray with you in just a minute, but I have a question for you first and an anchor verse to share with you. We've been working through the book of Acts for a number of months now, and I'm kind of wondering if most of you are where I'm at. As you learn about individuals like Peter and John and James and Philip, and now we're looking a lot at the life of Paul, do you not find some of these individuals and their life to be really intimidating? Yeah, yeah, a number of us. because they've set such a high bar, right? The, the standards are like, wow. I, I know they're human. I, I know they're ordinary individuals. But what they do seems so extraordinary, it can absolutely seem intimidating. But fortunately, these guys give us a reality check. And, and they let us know they're just like us. Matter of fact, Paul says this about himself, and he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Reality check. Paul says, I'm the one who persecuted the church. I was there when Stephen was murdered. I was the one torturing people and throwing them in prison. Chief of sinners. Many of us would want to argue with him and say, no, Paul, we're right up there with you. But he gives us a reality check. Yeah, a very intense individual, accomplishing a lot for the kingdom to the point where it causes us to feel a little intimidated. But reality check is he's a sinner just like the rest of us. And it's really important to keep that in mind as you go into Acts chapter 20. Because as you start looking through the lens of Acts chapter 20 at the things that he has done, it just causes you one more time to recoil and say, wow. How can I ever hit that standard? I'm going to pray with you right now because there's a lot of application points. We're actually going to do 38 verses this morning, all right? And, and while you're sucking in a little bit of air, it goes really, really fast, right? 38 verses are going to move really, really quick. So be prepared for that. I want to go into prayer, but I want you to ask God, Father, will you speak to me specifically? How do you want me to see this? Let's pray right now. Father, you hear the hearts of your people right now and just even in this moment whispering a breath of speak to me. Father, that you would give us personal application on top of the things that you've shown me to share. Father, that each individual would have the Holy Spirit speak to them. That's our heart, our desire. So we would ask for that. We would be content with that, that we would encounter you It's in Jesus' name we request it. Amen. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, and he's talking about the riot that we learned about last week, if you were here. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Here's what's going on. 
a lot of tension. Paul's wrapping things up in Ephesus. He wants to leave to go back to Jerusalem, but he decides he needs to go to Corinth first. But what's going on in Corinth is not very healthy, and it's causing a lot of tension. As a matter of fact, there's some people who have been greatly led astray. Other individuals are really misbehaving. And so Paul writes a really, really severe letter to them. You hold it in your hands if you're holding a Bible. It's known as 2 Corinthians. If you've not read it before, read it through that lens. Paul almost comes across as though he's angry in 2 Corinthians. Well, if you read it that way, you're reading it as a righteous anger. And so he speaks to them very directly. As a matter of fact, he writes in 2 Corinthians that it's painful for him to write it, that he's done it with many, many tears. And he sends the letter with Titus. Titus is a friend and understudy. Titus takes it to Corinth. It's about A.D. 55, A.D. 56, somewhere in there. Titus catches back up with Paul after delivering the letter and delivers the great news. Hey, the church responded to your letter. They did exactly what we wanted them to do. The the offenders have been disciplined. The church has been reconciled. And so finally, Paul personally leaves and goes to Corinth. His mind is on Corinth, even though he's wrapping things up in Ephesus. And that's where we find him in verse 3. It says in verse 3, And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, give me some grace on verse 4 when we go there. There's some names really hard to pronounce, okay? It says this, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and of Aristarchus, and Secundus, and of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychius, and it would be so easy if this was like Tom or Bob, right? Okay. <laughs> Tromphemus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now, they're not mentioned just because it's an interesting detail. There's a reason that we get this list. There's seven guys mentioned there, right? And then add to it Dr. Luke, who's writing this. And then add to it Paul. So you get this team of nine. Why the posse? Why such a big group? Well, there's two things that Paul has on his mind. One is he wants to encourage the churches. All those churches that he's launched all over Asia Minor, he wants to encourage them, but at the same time, he's collecting money to take it back to Jerusalem where people are starving. There's a lot of individuals that don't have any income because they've been blocked out of the economy because they're Christians. So Paul's collecting money to take it to them. And these individuals who are accompanying him are kind of like bodyguards They're not only protecting the money that Paul's collecting because it's a very large amount, they're also there as representatives of what Christ has done in their life, and they're going to go with him to Jerusalem as an example of what's been going on. You find some of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you've read about the offerings being taken in the church, look at it through that lens. This is what he's talking about here. Chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. That's the framework of that. So as we come into verse 6, we've got this big team of nine that are together on a boat. We go there, it says this, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. You think 38 verses is a lot? Try that, right? Okay. He's going all the way through the evening. What's going on here? Well, first of all, they're gathering together to break bread. I think they're hanging out in Troas simply because the next ship is not ready to sail. And it comes to the, the, what we would call the first day of the week, the end of the week for them. The, this ship has not yet gone out, so they find themselves the last day in town, which is Sunday, and they meet the believers, and so they're going to fellowship with them, worship. So we get some insight into what an early church worship service looks like. First of all, we see that they meet on the first day of the week. Makes sense. That's the day Jesus was resurrected, Lord's Day. Now, they didn't get the day off because Sunday was not a holiday or a national day of no work in their country. Everybody worked, and so they'd have to work all day long. So they're not meeting for church until the evening. So they gather together for the evening. Paul's hanging on to every possible minute with them. They're breaking the bread, and he's teaching them. And we come into verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus. By the way, his name means fortunate. You may not think so when you read this story, but just watch. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Doesn't sound too fortunate, right? Okay, so, so some of you all can identify with this young guy, right? You've ever fallen asleep in church, you, you know that sensation. So there, there's... Uh, probably a reality that this young guy is between the ages of 9 and 14, adolescent, and, and he's overcome by the warm glow of the flames in the room from the torches, and it's a warm spring evening in the, in the Mediterranean, and he's got a long-winded preacher, so he makes his way to the window, right? He's trying to catch some fresh air just to keep his eyes open. He's really tired, and he sits down in the windowsill. You ever had one of those dreams where you had the sensation of falling? Okay, the reality for him, right? That sense where I'm falling, I'm falling, and bam, it's over, and Eutychus is dead. Matter of fact, Dr. Luke, who writes this, is a physician, and he says he's dead, he's really dead. The fall kills him, and so we come to verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Now, this statement, his life is in him, verse 10, it doesn't mean Eutychus didn't die. Actually, he was dead. His life has been restored to him. So Paul commands them. He uses the word troubled. Don't be troubled. In other words, stop mourning. Don't cry. There's no reason for you to be shocked. His life is back in him now. So they go back upstairs and they take communion and they end up talking all night long with Paul. What do you think they're talking about? Jesus, right? This is Jesus' answer. But that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, I'm thinking, because they got a living example of the resurrection, the life back in this one that Jesus has just restored. God didn't restore Eutychus by Paul's power, right? It's Jesus working through Paul. Paul didn't raise him. God did it through him. So they spend the evening talking about the things of God. Paul teaches them all night long, and then he goes for a 20-mile hike. Can you imagine? Go with me to verse 13. But we, this is Luke talking about the group of seven, 
going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. So apparently Paul wants some time alone. Just to be by himself, he walks and he finally meets his team at another port. Next verse, 15. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos. The day following, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he stays in port, they tie up to the dock, and he sends a message. I need the elders to come to me. It says this in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now Miletus is 30 miles away. So if a messenger goes two days to get there, he's got two days to come back, gather the elders together, look in about four and a half days. I don't think this is just a time issue. Here's what I believe is going on. The struggle that they've been through together, and I'm talking about Paul and the church in Ephesus, has been so intense. The bond that they have built together is so intertwined, it would be impossible for him to tear himself away from that group of believers again. That's how tightly bound they are together. So he says, it's better that the leaders come to me Next big chunk, and we're going to kind of hit the brakes after this. Let me go to verse 18 with you. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This question I have for you may seem a little bit out of left field, but just bear with me for a minute. How many here have been in a hospital room or perhaps in a bedroom at home when a family member or a loved one has stepped from this world into the next. Wow, a lot of us. There were a lot of us in the, in the nine o'clock and in the Saturday night service also. So you know that sense, and, and if you haven't been in that setting, maybe you can identify with this. You know that sense of being there when someone utters their last words. And you wanna hang on to every possible thing you can hear from them and they want to communicate to you the most important things that you can possibly hear. When you come into this last section of what we're looking at here, look at it through that lens. Because as you're about to see in a few verses, Paul is never gonna see these people again on planet Earth, and he knows it. Never gonna see his face, the side of eternity. So the last time you see someone, you want to be sure to communicate the most important elements. Where does he start at? In verse 19, he starts by saying, you know that I'm someone who's been identified as an individual who's been serving the Lord. Now, when you start thinking of what we would think of as rock star status of Paul, this individual that other people would say, man, how, how is he so outstanding? You begin looking at these elements 
These phrases he says about himself, I've been serving the Lord. Now, we know enough about Paul if you've been studying it very long. He doesn't seek to please men, does he? He seeks to please Jesus. Now, that's what he says about himself in Galatians 1.10. Look at this through that lens. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Every single person in this auditorium, this is true of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every single believer is called to serve God in everything that we do. It's, it's not just the guy standing behind the podium teaching, and it's not just the guy sitting at the piano or those who are leading adult groups or children's groups. Every single one of us are on the same playing field together, serving us. It defines us. It defines our motivation. Look with me at Colossians 3.24. It says this, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So if, if you happen to be an office worker today, you're not an office worker who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christ follower. First, serving God, you carry him with you into the office. The same applies to the factory. The same applies to medical practice. The same applies if you're a student. You're a Christ follower first. You serve the Lord God, and you wear him every place you go. So Paul says, I'm a servant of the Lord, and then he lays this pattern for us. You see it in your notes this morning. You're going to see it up on the screen as well. There's these three characteristics that are specific to Paul, and the very first one he points out to us is, I've been doing this with humility because he says specifically in verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility. It's the trademark of Paul. You want to start looking at the status that put him where he's at? Start wearing the mantle of humility in the way that he describes it. He goes on to say in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. That's, that's the brand of the Christian life, that we would wear humility. Now, if, if number one is humility, here's the next one. And the second one's pretty hard for most people. To be really, really candid with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers. In, in Paul's linguistics, the way he's saying this, I was really direct and honest with you. In, in verse 20, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole truth. The word shrink, the way that it's used here, hupostello, it means I didn't draw back. You see it in your notes, it's not going on the screen. I, I didn't draw back or back away. I didn't withhold from you anything. He's speaking what is true, both in the public setting, and you see that he says also from house to house, meaning in private settings. So in public, I'm speaking the whole truth. In private, I'm speaking the whole truth. You and I, when we are faithful to the truth like that, there's absolutely nothing to hide. Now, keep that in your mind as we move through this story here. Because Paul doesn't hide the really, really hard things from this group, and neither should we. Here's the third thing. If the first one was humble and the second one was candid, the third one is inclusive. Because he says in verse 21, I've done doing this both for the Jews and the Greeks. There's nobody who doesn't get included in the invitation, meaning no one is left out. Look with me on the screen at Romans 1. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. The gospel is available to everyone, right, church? 
God reaches out to all, meaning there's no distinction whatsoever, yet the gospel is also incredibly exclusive. It's inclusive, meaning it's available to everybody, but it's incredibly exclusive because according to Acts 4.12, it says there's only one name by which you can be saved, the name of Jesus. That, that's the truth of Scripture. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except Jesus. So it's incredibly inclusive, meaning it's available to everyone, but exclusive to the core. Salvation is only in the name of Jesus. So verse 21 really kind of sums it up, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I want to come back to that. Let's move forward into verse 22. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, if danger and death are waiting for you, the typical person is saying, yeah, I'm not going there, right? We, we don't want to. Who wants to expose themselves to that? But Paul is so overwhelmingly committed to the things of Christ, he's completely captivated by it. So he uses this word bound. In the Greek language, it's the word deo. And deo, literally, in, if you were going to take the literal Greek meaning of it, it, it means to be wrapped up like in a handcuff. Or you've got ropes bound around you, you're tied up, or maybe you're in chains. It's used in the Bible of the marriage commitment figuratively. When a man and a woman makes a commitment to each other, they're bound together. Well, Paul's using the figurative sense here when he says, my commitment pushes me to Jerusalem. Even though I don't know specifically what's going to happen, I know it's going to be ugly. And even though it's going to be ugly, I'm bound to go. Now start thinking about this thought of not shrinking away and not holding back. He's willing to say the hard things. Notice what seems to be a dichotomy here. It's the Spirit pushing Paul, but it's the Holy Spirit who's also revealing to Paul, you're going to endure some hard things. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to prison. And it's not that he hasn't already suffered because we've seen him stoned, whipped, thrown in prison, held in stocks, chased out of town after town after town. He's already gone through a lot. So I'm working through this over the last week and I'm beginning to ask myself this question, why? Why does God reveal this to him in advance? Because I don't like knowing bad things in advance, do you? I don't want to know. It's bad enough to have my dentist appointments on the calendar. I don't want to know that there's something coming that's going to cause me pain, yet there's got to be a reason. Why does God reveal this? Well, here's the first one. I know that warnings prepare us that no matter what happens, Paul's being reminded here, God's still with you because when it feels like things are going really south, Paul, remember I told you in advance, Meaning, I want you to know I knew this. It's part of a larger picture. It, it's part of my greater purposes. So I started translating that thought over to, well, what about how God warns us throughout the Bible with other things like his prophecies about end times? What about his warnings about things that are to come? Because sometimes those are really painful to hear too. Many people avoid the book of Revelation. They just don't want to know it. They don't want to hear those things. But what does that do for us? Well, it builds a sense of confirmation or assurance that God not only sees the future, He controls the future. And it led me to this conclusion. 
God reveals really hard things like he's revealing to Paul here through his word. And some people choose to avoid it and say, I'd just rather not go there. I don't want to hear that. They'd rather leave it. And others embrace it. And we're looking at someone who's embracing it. And I understand why now. Because when we shrink away from the things that God has revealed, even the hard things, it becomes more difficult for him to use us. So let me translate that over conversations you might have. Maybe with a family member or a coworker or a neighbor. Perhaps in the past you found yourself when it comes to a conversation on things like hell, wanting to say, yeah, I'd rather just leave that one alone shrinking away, as opposed to embracing the reality that God speaks to those issues. I was just this last week reading about some guys who were in the military, a group of five or six guys who had been in a Bible study together with a previous chaplain on base, and their chaplain got transferred out, and the military assigned a new chaplain, so they went to meet with him. And their very first question, they collectively got together as a group and said, "What, what should we ask this guy? Here's their first question. Do you believe in a literal hell? The chaplain smiled and said back to them, no, I don't believe in a literal hell. So their response may surprise you. The response of those guys was, well, then you're wasting our time. Why are you here? If you're a chaplain, it means you represent the things of God, and you don't believe in a literal hell, then what's your purpose? But if there is a literal hell, then you're leading us astray. You're wasting our time and your time. When we shrink back from the hard things that God has said, it's difficult for him to use us. So Paul is embracing this really hard thing that God has just told him. I know that afflictions wait for me, but I'm bound to go because God has said he's going to use me. So watch what happens in verse 24, how maturity responds to really hard things even when you know what's waiting for you. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. So Paul says, I'm willing to embrace this. I'm willing to even put my life on the line that people will hear, that they will hear what? Verse 24 says, the gospel of grace. Now, you don't often hear it called the gospel of grace, but he uses it boldly there. Why? Well, think back to 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the chief. I think he needed to know about the gospel of grace. It's a big value to him. He wants to make sure others hear about the gospel of grace. So let me just bank back on verse 21. I know we blew past it, but just just for a moment, look at verse 21. Let your eyes drift back there again, and you'll see it on the screen. Verse 21 says, I'm telling people of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there is a representation for you that a biblical gospel, a gospel according to the Bible, has to contain these two things. Repentance towards God, faith in Jesus. Repentance towards God means I was going this way and my mind has realized that's something wrong. I've got to change and go the opposite direction. So it's not just a change of mind, it's a change of behavior, a change of pattern. And we don't just turn from something, we turn to something, faith in Jesus. 
That's the gospel Paul's talking about here. Jump with me back into the story now, verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purposes of God. If I was leaving New Hope, if I was resigning my position, those would be phrases I'd love to be said that were true about me. I'm not leaving, by the way. Okay, (laughs) just take the tension out of the room. And God hasn't called me away. But wouldn't you love to have that carved on your tombstone? I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. If we're all serving God, that should be true of all of us. I didn't shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. My hands are innocent of the blood of all men. He's playing on that watchman analogy that we talked about previously, where a watchman is on the wall. His job was to announce to the city whether or not the enemy was coming over the horizon, begin blowing the trumpet in advance, saying, I've I've done my job, but don't look at this as Paul defending himself. I don't think that's what's going on. Remember, these are his last words. He doesn't get to see these people's face again. So I believe what he's doing here is he's saying, look at the example I've laid for you. I've been the watchman. Now you pick up the baton. It's your job now. He ends it this way. Jump with me into the last portion, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. You notice the really first exhortation there? Very, very important. He says, guard yourselves. It's really hard for you and I to speak into someone else's life if we're not checking our own life first, right? So he puts it at the very top. Guard yourselves first. First priority for anyone is your own relationship with God. So the first step in being on guard, it's self-examination. Is is this true of me? Am I being consistent in my walk? Why does Paul raise it to such a high bar? Because he says in verse 28, you're in the church of God. In other words, God's got his name on it, and he bought it with his own blood. Most precious reality I can remind you of this morning. If you've heard nothing else, hear that. Jesus Christ bought you with his own blood. Incredible reality. Most precious reality on earth. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, the ultimate price was paid for you. Jesus purchased you with his blood. So that reality demands something of every believer that we treat the church as precious. And I'm not talking about the building. That we treat each other as precious because God's got his name on us and he bought us with his blood and he's equipping us for work in his kingdom. So Paul says the contrast to that is there's wolves that want to come in and rip the flesh off your bones That's what wolves do. They rip you apart. He's talking about the counterfeit teachers, the false teachers. Do you know what that means? That means the church of Jesus Christ has to understand the Word of God. Believers have to know the Word in order to be able to identify false teaching. 
If we're not equipped, if we're not properly trained, how are we going to know? I think that's why the church in the United States is struggling so much. And if you didn't know that it is, it is, if that's not a newsflash to you. The church is struggling because there isn't a lot of authoritative teaching on the truth of God's word. And people are being consumed by savage wolves. Paul says they're going to come up from among you. In Ephesus, the church that Paul founded, you find Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 talking to John on the island of Patmos about that very issue, that wolves came in among them and that they were trained so well by Paul that they recognized him immediately and they dealt with it. If you haven't read it before, read Revelation chapter 2 later today. Jesus is talking about this very, very issue here. So Paul uses this very strong word, perverse is diastropho. It came from the furniture industry, a term that Jesus would be familiar with because an individual, when they bought wood, if it had too much moisture in it, they took it home to make a cabinet. Once the piece of furniture was completed, if there was too much moisture in the wood, it would twist and be contorted out of shape. Diastropho means it's perverted. It can no longer be used for its original purpose. Watch how Paul closes this out. Verse 31, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Really feels ominous, doesn't it? It, it, Almost like somebody stepped into a hospice care. Very dark tone here. You can tell it's concluding to an end. Paul's passing the baton. So his admonition is continue on. Continue on with all that I've presented to you. Be faithful. So he closes with verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Earlier, we saw that the word of God shows us how to spot false teachers. And now we see his word builds us up. We at New Hope, if you're new here, you especially want to know this. At New Hope, we focus so heavily on the Word of God because God's Word does things. You don't sound like you believe that. God's Word does things. It does. It not only builds you up, it strengthens you, it causes you to identify your inheritance. You can spot false teaching. God's Word does things. If you're going to make New Hope your church, just expect that we focus a lot on the Word of God. Verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Verse 35, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you know that you can scour the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you won't find that phrase anyplace. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is something that was part of the oral tradition that was handed down to Christians, and Christians knew it. And so Paul is quoting Jesus, even though it was written no place else. John said there were many things Jesus did that were never written down. That's one of them. It's more blessed to give and receive, but it's of great magnitude that this is the only quotation of Jesus recorded outside of the Gospels. Why that one in particular? Because that really gives significant weight to it because of the way we should understand this. I believe what Jesus is saying here is 
it's better to share with others than just accumulate wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth because the blessing is not in the accumulating of wealth. It's in the sharing of it. One of the things that Paul wanted them to be reminded of. Why? Because they're about to go through some really hard times. They've got to have each other's back. When, it says in verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Really difficult to say goodbye. It's hard enough to say goodbye alone if somebody's going to be gone for months, but it's difficult to say a permanent goodbye. But the ship is about ready to sail. He's on the dock. And the ship is ready to go. The sails are opening up. Paul's got to get off into the harbor. Verse 37, And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. My friends, friends with Southern heritage um, like to use this phrase. I especially have heard it from John Palmer about how somebody from the South likes to hug on somebody's neck. I never heard that phrase, being from the North, didn't know what it meant, just to hug on their neck, until I understood this Old Testament phrase here. They've got such a grip on him, it's almost like they're choking his windpipe right off, right? They're just loving on him so much. Why does he rise to this level? Because there is absolutely no credibility gap in Paul's life. The truth he proclaimed is the way that he lived there's no airspace in between. The things he called them to, humility, not shrinking away, that's who Paul was. That's how he lived. Now, I know enough about Paul after studying his life, and you have done the same thing with me, that he would probably be pretty irritated with us and spending a whole lot of time on him, right? He's just so very humble. So we recognize it's Jesus who transformed him. It's Jesus who shaped his life. But I'm looking at a guy who's really been successful for the kingdom. So I want to know enough about him so I study his life. And here's the three things I end with. I don't know what application you found for yourself this morning, but I want you to see the three things that spoke to me. Maybe they speak to you as well. Specifically, I see he's got an incredible commitment to serving God. We saw that in verse 19. First and foremost, I've been serving the Lord with all humility. The second thing was a commitment to truth. Not shrinking back, even when it's hard to have a conversation with your friends who don't know Jesus. You want to shrink back. But Paul says, I'm not seeking to please men. I'm seeking to please God. And then he's got this incredible commitment to spiritual character in the church. That one really speaks to me. It's ferocious about how Christ followers live their life out so that there would be no credibility gap in our lives. Those things really speak to me. I, I hope they do to you as well. 38 verses is a lot to take on, I realize. But God speaks through these kind of things. So I'm gonna pray that way. However the Holy Spirit moved or pricked your heart this morning, that you'll find where that connection point is, what God wanted you to hear. Let me pray with you. Father, we find the incredible reality that we just worked through something that was written 2,000 years ago. And yet it's as true today as it was then about the way that you work through individuals. 
We come into an auditorium like this, Father, with a desire to encounter you. And sometimes when we encounter you, the things that you say to us hurt. Sometimes they inspire. But the things that hurt or convict are the things we tend to want to back away from. So, Father, I ask that wherever you moved in hearts this morning, to you especially allow us not to quickly back away, to be willing to embrace the hard things. Because we know in the midst of those hard things, you want to work through it. You want to advance your kingdom. You allow them for a purpose. Thank you for the model we have in Paul. Thank you for causing it to be written down. That it's much more than just an interesting story. God, I ask for those who are in fellowship with you, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you strengthen them and empower them this week. You've been faithful to come today to study your word. Use us for the benefit of your kingdom. Father, for those who are here who might be struggling trying to figure out what this whole thing is about, I ask you to be especially close to them. Surround them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Bring the reality upon that individual's life of a need to encounter Jesus, to meet the Savior who forgives. God, we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name who bought us at great price with his own blood. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.